On the arrival at Quebec of the American prisoners of war surrendered at Queenstown, they were mustered and examined by British officers appointed to that duty, and every native born of the United Kingdoms of Great Britain and Ireland sequestered and sent on board a ship of war then in the harbor. The vessel in a few days sailed for England with these prisoners on board. I distinctly understood as well from the officers who came on board the prison ship for the above purposes, as from others with whom I remonstrated on this subject, that it was the determination of the British government to punish every man whom it might subject to its power, found in arms against the British king, contrary to his native allegiance. Lieutenant Colonel Winfield Scott, 1813. Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies, and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge. And a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two D's in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 26, The Queenston Hostages On August 9, 1815, a Spanish ship called the Santa Maria limped into Boston Harbor at the end of a 40-day voyage from Plymouth, England. Aboard the ship were 260 Americans, former prisoners of war who had been held by the British, some for almost the entirety of the War of 1812. The Santa Maria was originally bound for Norfolk, Virginia, but the released POWs, most from northern states, took over the ship shortly after departure and diverted it to Boston, closer to home. This sounds like a dramatic event, a mutiny at sea, but actually it wasn't. The commandeering of repatriation ships by their passengers was a fairly common occurrence at the end of the War of 1812. It happened several times, and was usually settled, as this one was, by the mutineers signing a certificate indemnifying the ship's captain for any potential losses. These were very tired men, some in poor health, and they just wanted to get home quicker. Unlike other homecomings for former American prisoners of war in American history, the return of the Santa Maria's passengers commanded little attention. There were no brass bands to meet them, no flags, no crowds chanting USA. In 1973, when the last POWs that had been held in captivity in the Vietnam War were released, future senator and presidential candidate John McCain was among them, their joyous return was broadcast on the nightly news. But it wasn't like that in 1815. Not only was there no patriotic celebration, the Boston newspapers didn't even make mention of the event, except to note in their shipping registers that the Santa Maria had docked, which happened for every ship that came into the harbor. For many of the ex-prisoners, their families were not only not there to greet them, Many of them had written them off as dead, or unlikely to return. Among the weary ex-prisoners who shuffled down the Santa Maria's gangplank that day 
were 20 Irish Americans who had experienced a unique odyssey, one even more harrowing than the typical POW experience. These particular men were the survivors of an original group of 23, American soldiers captured at the Battle of Queenston Heights, which took place near Niagara Falls in October 1812, one of the first land battles of the war, and a disastrous defeat for American forces. Many troops were taken prisoner in that battle, but the British claimed that these 23 were technically still British subjects, and having been captured in the uniform of an enemy on the battlefield, fighting forces of Great Britain, they were guilty of treason against a king to whom they thought, wrongly the Brits claimed, that they owed no allegiance. In fact, the capture of the Queenston 23 was the beginning of what can only be described as a hostage crisis, ultimately involving hundreds of men, Americans and British, on both sides of the Atlantic. This was not the first, and certainly not the last, time that Americans would be taken hostage by a foreign power. In the 1780s and 1790s, dozens of Americans were held hostage, some for years, in North Africa by semi-autonomous local rulers who made their living by plundering ships in the Mediterranean, the Barbary pirates that Thomas Jefferson was to wage war on in 1805. In the 1980s, several Americans were held against their will in Lebanon by various Middle Eastern terrorist groups, leading to the attempt by the Ronald Reagan administration to sell illegal weapons to Iran in the hopes of influencing their release, the Iran-Contra scandal. And, most notoriously in recent times, the detention of 53 Americans associated with the American embassy in Tehran, held by Iran for 444 days, between 1979 and 1981. The hostages from Queenston Heights, however, were very different. In all of these other situations, the people who wound up in captivity were essentially random. It didn't matter who they were. They were held because they were Americans, and any American would do. They were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But in 1812, the British singled out these specific 23 Americans, not just any Americans who fell into their clutches, by surrendering on the battlefield. Why they did so, and why the Queenston hostage situation dragged on for two and a half years, twice as long as the Tehran hostage crisis, has to do with one of the central reasons why the War of 1812 was fought. The Queenston prisoners were, in a very real sense, the living, walking embodiment of what some Americans called the Second War for Independence. The Queenston hostages represented how American and British ideas of citizenship differed, and, more importantly, what was at stake for each nation during the War of 1812. So join me now for the strange and fascinating story of the very long and convoluted odyssey of the Queenston hostages. Good evening. Before we begin tonight, there's just a few brief announcements. First, as I announced at the beginning of episode 25, I'm going to be putting out a Second Decade book. Second Decade, The Long Dawn of the 19th Century, will be coming out in ebook and paperback versions sometime probably early next year, 2018. It's based on 12 of my first season episodes, including Jefferson, Chambora, and Napoleon in Russia, and it's going to be a very fun and interesting book. Expanded, revised, and sourced, the book is a must for fans of this podcast. Not an academic history book, not a giant tome with thousands of footnotes, just a fun, readable, popular history, the same kind of history I've always done here. 
Second, if you are an academic historian or have some interest in professional history, I just completed an interview on the New Books Network, the Environmental Studies channel. I interviewed Dr. Ryan Fisher, author of the book Cattle Colonialism, an environmental history of the conquest of California and Hawaii. If you'd like to hear that, go to newbooksnetwork.com, click the Science and Tech bar, and select Enviro Studies. It's the first one that appears when you put your cursor on that bar. You should see it pop right up, Cattle Colonialism. Fun interview and a great one for environmental historians. I'll be doing more interviews on that channel. Sam White, for instance, author of A Cold Welcome, brand new book about the Little Ice Age. I know Sam, great guy, very good at what he does, and I'm sure you'll want to hear him on the New Books Network Enviro Studies channel. Okay, let's get into the story of the Queenston hostages. This episode is actually based on a paper I wrote in 2011 during my master's program. It thus represents some original research. I had to poke around in a lot of old dusty books, including the American State Papers series, for many of the details. The War of 1812 is surprisingly well documented, at least in official papers, and the story of the Queenston 23 snakes through the whole war like a main circuit cable, to borrow a phrase from the movie Apocalypse Now. Yet it's a story ignored or only mentioned in passing in a surprising number of histories of the war. I did a show about the War of 1812, three of them in fact, four if you count episode 22, about the battles of the USS Constitution. I don't want or need to repeat myself here. If you're interested in the background of the war, what brought it on, why it was fought, go back to episode 15. The war was ill-advised from the beginning. The United States declared it foolishly when it was totally unprepared and had little hope of winning it. Yet for a complex web of reasons, the war came anyway. On June 18, 1812, President James Madison signed, more or less reluctantly, the declaration of war against Great Britain that had been passed by Congress. Militarily, the U.S. had few assets with which to fight this war. The USS Constitution was one of them, but in the way of land armies, which were needed both to fight the British on the northwest frontier and the Native Americans, loosely allied with them, the U.S. had very little to offer. Britain was a much bigger naval power than a land one, but by 1812 the British had been fighting France off and on for 19 years. Their army was much more experienced than the Americans. One of the major military objectives of the United States in this war was to conquer Canada, then held by the British. Americans wanted Canada for a number of reasons. Territorial gain, the vindication of Madison's Democratic-Republican Party at the polls that fall, security for white settlers on the frontier against Indian nations, and the military necessity of striking at Britain's greatest concentration of land forces in North America. Some pro-war politicians expected the conquest of Canada would be easy, or even that the Canadians would welcome American forces as liberators. Gee, where have we heard that before? In any event, it was much harder to take Canada than many people expected. In fact, the campaign, launched in summer 1812, was pretty much a disaster. American forces got clowned pretty much everywhere they went into the field. The British Army was simply better. By October 1812, American commanders were desperate for any sort of victory on the Canadian border. They decided to attack a small garrison of British troops and their Native American allies at Queenston Heights along the Niagara River. On October 13, 1812, Lieutenant Colonel Solomon Van Rensselaer 
set out with a mixed force of militia and army regulars. Van Rensselaer, however, was wounded early in the operation. An up-and-coming, very handsome new lieutenant colonel, Winfield Scott, took command in his place. At first, the Battle of Queenston Heights seemed to go well for the Americans. Scott stormed the heights in a daring charge, and the British commander, General Brock, was killed. Then the Brits brought up their Native American reinforcements. The tide of battle changed, and quickly became a rout. American troops ran away, splashing desperately into the river, trying to avoid Indian tomahawks and the blast of British muskets. Colonel Scott decided to surrender. More than 900 American troops, including Scott himself, were taken prisoner by the British at Queenston Heights. You might think, given the experience of POWs in other wars, especially World War II and Vietnam, that these people were fated to spend a long time in a prison camp. Ultimately, they did, but that actually was not supposed to be the case. Usual practice was to parole POWs, send them home on the condition that they not serve again during the war. In fact, such an agreement was struck between the British and American commanders. I've read the document. It's called Agreement for Exchange of Prisoners. However, this arrangement applied only to the militia and volunteers. The higher-ups in British Canada would have to decide what to do with the U.S. troops from the regular army. So they sent these troops, still prisoners, it's not clear to me how many there were at this time, they sent them to Montreal to await instructions from Sir George Prevost, who was the Governor General of Upper Canada. On November 20th, the British authorities decided to return the U.S. regulars back to the United States. They boarded them on a ship in Montreal Harbor, bound for Boston. Then a couple of British officials boarded the ship. They had come on the instructions of George Prevost. They started interrogating the American prisoners. Those who spoke with Irish accents, the officials started pulling aside. This happened while their commander, Winfield Scott, was talking to one of the British officers inside a cabin aboard the ship. This was probably a deliberate diversion. When Scott heard what was going on outside, he burst out of the cabin and found 23 men had already been pulled aside by the British. Instantly understanding what was going on, which I'm going to explain in depth in a moment, Scott shouted to the rest of his men not to say another word. With regard to the first 23, though, the ones the British had gotten to before Scott understood what was happening, the damage was done. The Brits had already separated them from the other American prisoners bound for Boston. These 23, the officials insisted, were not Americans at all. They were clearly British subjects. In fact, the officials, acting on Prevost's orders, said they were going to send these 23 men back to England for trial as traitors. They had been captured while bearing arms against King George III. The fact that the Queenston 23 were identified by their voices, the Irish accents, is really key here. We know this is what was going on because after Scott told his men not to talk, the British were unable to continue their process of weeding out. This might seem bizarre at first, why was speaking with an Irish accent supposedly evidence that they were not Americans? It has to do with how the British defined citizenship, and in fact, this was a very central issue to the war. The Queenston 23 were regular army soldiers from the 1st, 6th, and 13th U.S. Infantry Regiments. All were of Irish background. They all had traditionally Irish names, like Doyle, McGowan, Fitzgerald, Donnelly, and Mooney. In fact, every one of these 23 had been born not in America, but in Ireland. Yet they insisted they were American citizens. Scott protested, but to no avail. 
The rest of the Queenston POWs were allowed to continue on their voyage from Montreal to Boston, where they were repatriated. But the Queenston 23 were transferred to a British warship, the HMS Namur, which sailed a few days later. That ship reached England in early February 1813. In the meantime, Scott himself finally got back to Washington, D.C. In January 1813, he was invited to a reception at the White House, where he got a chance to talk to the president, James Madison. Apparently, several members of Congress were there, too. Scott started flapping his gums about the Queenston 23. This was the first that Madison had heard of it. The little commander-in-chief, Madison was only five foot one, was outraged. He told Scott to report the matter officially to the Secretary of War. The quote that opened this episode is from Scott's letter to the new Secretary of War, dated January 13, 1813. Incidentally, that was the first day that the new Secretary of War, John Armstrong Jr., replaced the old Secretary of War, William Eustis. The matter of the Queenston 23 slowly started up the official chain. The orders to seize supposedly British-born soldiers captured in an American uniform came from the Governor-General of Lower Canada, but he was acting on orders from the British government. On October 26, 1812, the Prince Regent, remember from episode 19, King George himself was mentally incapacitated at this time, Anyway, the Prince Regent issued an edict saying that any native of Britain or Ireland captured in the service of American armed forces would be executed for treason. It's hard to overestimate the chilling effect this decree had in the United States. Members of the American militia who'd been born in the British Isles were especially terrified. Several militia companies from Pennsylvania, New York, and Maryland were on the verge of disbanding for fear of being captured and executed by the British. The vast majority of these people were, like the Queenston 23, born in Ireland. In early January 1813, a man named John Binns, who had been born in Dublin, chaired a committee of a group called the Society for United Irishmen, which operated out of Philadelphia. In his letter, he wanted President Madison to, quote, give such an answer that will dispel all fear, reanimate confidence, and make gratitude and patriotism burn with still a brighter and more vivid flame. End quote. This letter was sent with a petition signed by 2,000 people demanding that Madison take British soldiers who were captured on the battlefield hostage as a countermeasure to protect the lives of Irish-born Americans captured by the British. This petition arrived at the White House just before the reception where Madison found out about the Queenston 23. And those congressmen who were at the reception too and who overheard Scott telling the president about this they acted, too. In March, Congress passed a bill authorizing Madison to retaliate against British prisoners for any war crimes committed by the British against Americans. This measure was probably directed specifically to protect the Queenston 23. On May 15, 1813, the new Secretary of War, John Armstrong, sent a letter to Major General Henry Dearborn, commander of the Northeastern Sector. The letter instructed Dearborn to hold exactly 23 British soldiers, quote, in close confinement to be kept as hostages. Diplomatically, the move was very clear. If the British hurt any of the Queenston 23, who were now awaiting trial in England, the 23 British held in American forts near Detroit would suffer equal consequences. The stage was set for a transatlantic standoff. The 23 Irish-born Americans captured at Queenston Heights we're now at the center of what the whole War of 1812 was about. 
So what was the deal here? Why were the Brits so hell-bent on holding the Queenston 23 and making examples of them? The answer has to do with citizenship, a more difficult question in the second decade than it is today. It's an important question and a controversial one, because whenever you're talking about citizenship, you're talking about national identity. Who counts as an American? The American Revolution, whose memory was still fresh in many people's minds in 1812, was, at least on the Patriot side, supposed to be about freedom and choice. People in a free society have a fundamental right to choose their allegiance. This is, in a way, inherent in the whole revolution itself. Because the majority of Americans who lived in the colonies in 1776 had been born under British sovereignty, the revolution could only succeed in turning Americans into something other than British subjects through some lawful, or at least just, process. The Declaration of Independence asserted that the colonies had a natural right to rebel because Britain had broken the social contract. The Declaration sort of baptized everyone as Americans. If you didn't like this idea, if you refused the baptism, then you became a loyalist. And when the revolution was over, you either left America, as many thousands of loyalists did, or you made peace with the new order and became an American, however begrudgingly. It follows in this new land of free choice, supposedly free as long as you weren't a slave, it follows that many people could, by choice, come to America from other countries and become Americans. Many did just that. The procedure for naturalization in this period was not uniform. Each state did it differently. How many years you had to live there, if you took a loyalty oath, whatever. The status of being a citizen of the United States piggybacked on whether you were a citizen of a specific state. If you were born in, say, Spain and moved to Philadelphia, and you satisfied whatever criteria the laws of Pennsylvania said you needed to do to be counted as a citizen of Pennsylvania, then you were a U.S. citizen by virtue of being a citizen of Pennsylvania. The U.S. federal government had no uniform laws on American citizenship. By contrast, the British view of citizenship was totally different. Beginning in 1608, British law and British courts consistently maintained that if you were born a subject of the monarch of Great Britain, you remained one until the day you died, and there was nothing you could do to change that. The sole exception to this rule, if it was an exception at all, came in 1783, when the Treaty of Paris, that's the treaty that ended the Revolutionary War, was signed. In that treaty, the government of Britain formally recognized the independence and sovereignty of the United States. But that recognition did not extend to questions of citizenship of individuals. As late as 1797, British courts continued to insist that Britons had not and could not divest themselves of allegiance to the British crown, regardless of circumstances. This odd interpretation was a quirk of British law, but at least in the early years it didn't amount to much. It's not like British courts were asserting, 15 years after the end of the Revolution, that rank-and-file Americans born in America were somehow guilty of treason for believing they owed allegiance to the government of Pennsylvania, or even the President of the United States. The issue just didn't come up much. But then came the war with France. As the French Revolutionary Wars of 1792 and 93 eventually became a global war against Napoleon, the British desperately needed sailors to man their ships. When it came to merchant mariners, the Brits were at a disadvantage compared to the Americans. American ships paid better, and they didn't whip you with cat-o'-nine-tails quite as often as they did on British ships. So a lot of British sailors ran away and joined the American Merchant Marine, or even the American Navy. 
When British vessels encountered these sailors on the high seas, as they often did while blockading France, for example, the British captains, who were usually hard up for men to replace the attrition among their crews, felt totally justified in taking these men back into British service, forcibly if necessary. The legal rule that said that once a British subject, always a British subject, that rule meant the law was on their side, at least in a British court. But in the second decade, it was often hard to tell who was British-born and who wasn't. The British were pretty lax in making this determination, erring on the side of grabbing anybody they wanted and letting the chips fall where they may. This was the issue of impressment, which was one of the main causes of the War of 1812. As early as 1796, American officials tried to protect their citizens on the high seas by issuing them certificates of citizenship, supposedly proving they were U.S. citizens. But the certificates were so chintzy and so easily forged or transferred that most of the time, the British just ignored them. Questions of citizenship, particularly regarding people born in Ireland, were especially sensitive for the Brits. Britain had been claiming dominion over Ireland for centuries, and for centuries, the Irish resisted. Conditions in Ireland were pretty terrible. The Brits kept the Emerald Isle impoverished and weak, stripping its resources for the benefit of British landowners. In 1798, a major rebellion broke out in Ireland against British rule. The group who spearheaded the revolt was called the Society of United Irishmen. Yes, the same group that John Binns of Philadelphia belonged to. This was really an awful rebellion. There were battles and massacres all over Ireland, as well as waves of individual violence involving shootings and torture of Irish rebels. One method of torture was called pitch capping, where hot tar was poured onto a victim's head through sort of a dunce cap. When it cooled, it would tear the scalp off. The British put down this rebellion, but many thousands of Irish fled the island, most to the United States. The 1798 rebellion was the trigger of the first major wave of Irish immigration to America. The second would be the Great Potato Famine of the 1840s. So if you're wondering how and why the men of the Queenston 23 got to America, remember I said they were all born in Ireland, this was how. The Queenston hostages were, for the British, a perfect test case for British views of voluntary citizenship. If Britain truly meant to enforce its view of involuntary and immutable subject status, it couldn't find a better case to make than these 23 people. Born in Ireland, naturalized, or perhaps not naturalized, through an inconsistent patchwork of ad hoc American laws administered by individual states, the Queenston 23 offered a very clear opportunity for British courts to declare once and for all that American naturalization laws had no effect on British subject status. It was, in this sense, an opportunity to undo the American Revolution, at least as far as British law was concerned. This was why the stakes were so high for the American government. So now, at the beginning of 1813, each of the countries was holding a group, 23 to be exact, a group of hostages that would answer for whatever the other country did to their opposite numbers. But of course, the numbers didn't stay at 23. When told of Dearborn having set aside 23 British prisoners as hostages, Sir George Prevost, you remember, he was the Governor General of Lower Canada, he announced that for every Briton executed by the United States, two Americans would die. He also warned that if the Americans started executing their British hostages, British naval commanders would retaliate by ravaging American coastal settlements, quote, with unmitigated severity. 
This was no idle threat. By fall 1813, the British had blockaded the entire American coast south of New England. There had already been some coastal raids. In the meantime, the Queenston hostages languished in a prison in England. Henry Kelly, one of the men, served as a spokesman for the group. Even during the war, there was an American consul in London, a guy named Reuben Beasley, who was basically the agent for the POWs. Kelly wrote to Beasley begging him to do something for them. Kelly reported, quote, We are in a very miserable condition for clothing, having drawn no winter clothes before we were taken. Beasley couldn't do much. He had no finances, no supplies, and no access to the hostages. But he forwarded Kelly's letter. Eventually, it ended up on the desk of the Secretary of State, James Monroe. The hostage crisis continued, with more and more hostages being taken from the ranks of PLWs on both sides, and more retaliations and threats. Throughout 1813, letters flew furiously between Colonel Thomas Barclay, British Consul in the U.S., and John Mason, American Commissary General of Prisoners, each time upping the ante. The number of hostages doubled several times. The Queenston group was soon joined by other Americans, for whom British prisoners were being held as hostages. When the British seized a ship's carpenter and another sailor from the USS Vixen, President Madison ordered four more Britons to be set aside as hostages for their treatment. In addition to volleying threats at each other like tennis balls, Barclay and Mason fought epic battles over where their various groups of hostages should be held, the size of their sleeping berths, and whether they should be allowed to leave their prisons and live in the surrounding communities. Barclay was especially insistent that the British prisoners be allowed the use of servants. Several of the hostages were upper-crust gentlemen who could, under no circumstances, be allowed to suffer the indignity of dressing themselves or making their own tea. The United States did not generally do very well on the battlefield during the War of 1812, at least not on land. Because the Americans won so many fewer battles, they had a lot less British POWs than British had Americans, which meant that Madison would soon run out of Brits to take hostage. In fact, Barclay warned Mason about this. On September 17, 1813, he wrote to Mason, quote, There are at least six times as many American prisoners to His Majesty as there are British prisoners in these states, and, if the system is maintained, all prisoners on both sides must suffer, end quote. By early 1814, Madison was looking for a way out. Eventually, he sent General William Winder to Montreal to negotiate. Winder was thought to be sympathetic to the British. The result was a little better, but not totally satisfactory. On April 15, 1814, an exchange agreement was signed. Hostages on both sides would be returned, and they were even allowed to re-enlist in their respective services. Except that the original Queenston 23 were held back and not covered by this agreement. The Brits really wanted to press the citizenship issue. The Madison administration refused to ratify the agreement. Although the British did release the other hostages, the Queenston group remained sort of in limbo. Part of the reason was that the citizenship issues were so tricky and so politically explosive that underlings and junior diplomats like Winder, Barclay, and Mason simply lacked the authority to make such high-level calls. It was clear that, at least with regard to the Queenston hostages, their status would have to be decided at the top. For all their bluster and scary-sounding threats, however, the British did not put the Queenston hostages on trial. In fact, ultimately they were lumped together with other American prisoners, most of them sailors, in Dartmoor Prison in Devonshire. 
Refraining from trial seems to have been a negotiating tactic, and it did work. By August 1814, the American government was backing off more threats to secure the hostages' release, assuming that the peace commissioners seeking an overall end to the whole war should be allowed to do their job. The story of those peace commissioners, future President John Quincy Adams was among them, is the story of the Treaty of Ghent, and I've done that story already here on Second Decade. Suffice it to say, after Britain's war with Napoleon ended in 1814, and the possibility of shifting significantly more troops to the American front made Madison and his pals queasy, the Americans were eager to sign an agreement to end the war, and pretty much any agreement would do. The British sailing up the Potomac and leaving Washington, D.C. a smoking ruin, as they did in August 1814, merely underscored the point that the United States was going to lose this war. Incidentally, though, the end of the war with Napoleon indirectly made the citizenship issue easier to solve. Because Britain was no longer at war with France, she no longer had an acute need for sailors. Impressment had already been rescinded as national policy, ironically even before the war began, though news of this move didn't reach America until it was too late. So now the question was, could Britain give a little bit on the citizenship issue and let these 23 guys go in exchange for not having to carry on an expensive war across the Atlantic at the end of very long supply lines? That, after all, was ultimately what convinced them to pull the plug on the Revolutionary War in 1783. By late 1814, the Brits were even more exhausted, and even more in need of a quiet evening drinking gin and watching Coronation Street, figuratively speaking. In the peace negotiations at Ghent, Belgium in November and December 1814, it was the British side, interestingly, that wrote the article that resolved the fate of the Queenston hostages. Prisoners of war would be repatriated as soon as possible after the ratifications of the treaty were exchanged. Each side would pay, in gold, expenses of the other for the care and feeding of the other side's prisoners. Adams and the other delegates didn't quibble on this point. This clause appears unchanged in the final treaty, signed in Ghent on Christmas Eve, and which was ratified by the U.S. Senate on February 16, 1815. Peace was restored, but the odyssey of the hostages was not over. Because the treaty said that repatriations wouldn't happen until ratifications were exchanged, the POWs remained in Dartmoor Prison even after the war was over. On April 6, 1815, a riot broke out in the prison yard, apparently having something to do with a ball game. The British guards started shooting. Seven Americans were killed. Instead of igniting a new round of recriminations, officials on both sides, including Reuben Beasley, decided the best thing was just to get the POWs home as quickly as possible. American officials chartered as many ships as they could, as cheaply as they could, to get the more than 2,000 remaining prisoners, including the Queenston hostages, out of Dartmoor, out of England, and back to American shores. One of these ships was the Santa Maria. That brings us back to where we started, that lonely homecoming on the Boston waterfront in August 1815. 20 of the original 23 hostages were still alive, the other three apparently having died of disease or other natural causes during their captivity. It's not known what happened to the Queenston hostages after their return. All 20 vanished from history at this point. Presumably they returned to their farms, homes, and shops, or tried to put their lives back together if they could. They'd been prisoners nearly three years. That's a long time to be away from home. There's a fascinating postscript to this story, at least with regard to the citizenship issue. In 1824, a case was decided at the King's Bench, a high court in Great Britain, 
called Doe versus Acklam. In this case, a couple of judges wearing long gray wigs decided that a loyalist born in Britain, but who continued to live in the United States after the Revolution, became an American citizen upon the signing of the Treaty of Paris in 1783. Although the British government had nominally recognized American independence in that treaty, it was not until this Doe versus Acklam case that British courts were willing to concede that the fact of independence ultimately made American citizens out of former Britons who continued to live in the United States. If the Doe decision had come down a few years earlier, it's doubtful it would have helped any of the Queenston hostages. However, the case does represent a pretty unequivocal repudiation of the basic principle behind why the British detained the Queenston 23. The idea that once you were born British, nothing could make you un-British. In this sense, this case, decided years after the war was over, is in a way the clearest victory of the United States in the War of 1812. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor. Leave a star rating and a review on iTunes. The vast majority of listeners to Second Decade have found us on iTunes, and it will greatly increase our reach. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. Be sure to check out my interview podcasts on the New Books Network. There's one up so far and more to come. Go to newbooksnetwork.com, category science and technology, and find Enviro Studies. And remember, the Second Decade book is coming out in a few months. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash seanmunger. You can also read a lot of history and a lot of other stuff at my personal website, seanmunger.com. My historical sources for this episode include The Civil War of 1812, American Citizens, British Subjects, Irish Rebels, and Indian Allies by Alan Taylor, Alfred A. Knopf, 2012. The Prisoner's Memoirs or Dartmoor Prison by Charles Andrews, 1815, and Retaliation for Treatment of Prisoners in the War of 1812 by Ralph Robinson, American Historical Quarterly, Volume 49, Number 1, 1943. Music Credits Our theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.